welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today we're talking to Christian Busse. Um, I met him at the Republica, well, pre-Republica Netzfest. So Republica is this huge meeting of digital community in Berlin every year. Um, and this year we were there at kind of like a pre-event, um, actually making um, a bit of PR for the Long Net of Sciences. And there I was standing across, well, our booth basically was across the booth from the European Open Software Foundation. And that just seemed like a fate brought us together. <laughs> so I walked immediately over and I was like, guys, I really want to talk to you for the podcast. And they're like, oh, you have to talk to Christian. So today we're talking to Christian. Yes. And uh, we're going to be asking him all about all things software related. Uh, so free software, open software and so on. And here he is. My name is Christian Busse. I'm a project lead at uh, German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, and um, I'm working in immunology. And um, obviously our, our, our listeners can't see this, but I noticed you're wearing a T-shirt today that says public money, public code. Uh, I like that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, so Public Money, Public Code is a campaign uh, of the Free Software Foundation Europe that started approximately two years ago. And the general idea behind it is that um, software is written and uh, or written or well, financed by tax money um, should then also be um, free for the public to use, um, which from the perspective of the Free Software Foundation Europe, so short FSFE, um, usually typically means uh, to put it under an, a free license. Uh, like Creative Commons? Um, well, Creative Commons is probably the best known example for these things. However, for software, there is um, there is a special set of licenses. Um, uh, probably the best knowns are things like um, uh, the GNU public licenses, so short GPL, which is best known for being the one that is used for the Linux kernel, um, but also things like Mozilla public license, known from Firefox or um, Apache. Um, um, the difference for these things is that um, the um, more uh, the broader licenses or the ones that were made for creative content, like the um, CC BY that you mentioned, um, is um, they don't. Uh, necessarily address all the um, details that are relevant for software because for software we have binary we have the binaries that you can run and you have the source code um, and um, the classical Creative Commons licenses they just refer typically to to one blob to um, to a picture for example or to a piece of music um, while um, you don't have this dichotomy um, between code and binary uh, that you have for software. That makes sense. Um, I'm wondering, so in the open science uh, movement, we talk about open data, mm -hmm. we talk about open source, that's the open code, open software. Um, I just um, wonder whether open software is special in any way. I mean, because if we talk about just open code, that's kind of like open data, right? But uh, can you please maybe, because we talked about it before, and I just wonder yeah. like, if you could elaborate a bit more about the, the specifics of the open software uh, well, problematics or the challenges. 
Okay, so um, I mean, the, uh, the, the point is, on the one hand, what do we want from a piece of software? Do we just want to be able to have a look at its inner workings, which of course is one of the, one of the central things that we would like to do in science. Um, we don't want to have a black box. Um, you wouldn't trust anyone if you're coming from a lab background. You wouldn't just say, okay, well, I just added my magic sauce and then the experiment worked. You want to see, okay, so I added enzyme X, I used buffer Y and so on and so forth. And this is of course what having a look at the code already provides you with. However, this is just for reproducibility. Um, but that does not necessarily mean that you would be allowed to use that piece of software um, uh, because it might still be under a license. So um, for software to be readable, so to be in very broad terms, to be open source, um, is not necessarily the same thing as to have free software um, that you are then also to allow, uh, allow to run, to modify and to redistribute which I think comes much closer to the things that um, uh, we are trying to do in science. Um, to elaborate a little bit on this further, there's a kind of a distinct, or people tr sometimes make up a distinction between free software, which is the original definition that comes from the mid 80s. Um, that is exactly, that focuses on the freedoms of the user, which is the freedom to use it, to study it, to modify it and to redistribute it um, versus the open source definition, which comes from the end of the 90s. Um, and um, people try to avoid the term free because of course in English it's this thing, well, it usually will, doesn't cost anything. So um, uh, therefore they, they try to get around this thing. And um, so the main organization now that um, governs what is considered to be open source is the open source initiative. And they have um, uh, basically 10 guidelines or 10 rules um, what this should do. If you compare um, those four freedoms with those 10 guidelines or with, with those 10 points in their guidelines, in the end, it somehow, it, it nearly matches. I think there is not a single piece of software I'm aware of that would be um, open source, but not free software. But um, the open source criteria much more focus on the licensing itself, while the other one focuses on the freedom. And therefore, I think if we're thinking about open science, um, then those four freedoms um, uh, are a little bit closer to, to what, where we're trying to get to. So it's basically the definitions, just to sort of sum up in my head, uh, it's just to avoid the term free, which implicates like free beer, basically. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. That's that, that's why 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 the tagline usually is that free software is free as in freedom and free as in beer. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, you're also engaged, so you just already mentioned the Free Software Foundation Europe. Mm -hmm. Can you please tell us a bit uh, more what it is, what it does, and why you're um, engaged in it? Okay, so um, the FSFE is, a, is an advocacy group, um, so, um, we're, uh, um, so we're trying to, um, of course, promote um, uh, the use of free software and um, um, we do this on a lot of levels. So on the one hand, of course, there are um, dozens of um, local groups, like for example, there's one in Berlin, there's one in Hamburg, there's one in Munich, and um, that's relatively broadly distributed across Europe, where um, um, people really meet and um, try to actively well, move from a proprietary software towards, um, uh, towards free software. 
Um, on the other hand, of course, the um, uh, so our head office um, is also located here in Berlin, and um, there is then dedicated staff um, that really tries to put these things higher up, um, uh, really on a policy level, both on um, well regional, federal, and European um, level. Is, um, is there a specific? Um, agenda right now? Like, is there something that's right now really high on the agenda of the uh, foundation that you're working on right now? Well, so the, um, I mean, there are always campaigns um, running. And um, right now, really, the um, clearly the biggest campaign is um, a public money, public code. Um, and um, simply because um, over the uh, Let's say over the last year, um, it really has gained traction. Um, uh, recently, for example, the city of Barcelona um, has signed that bill. And um, I mean, it's interesting to see that, um, uh, especially from the um, uh, more or less from the governmental um, or municipal um, uh, offices or entities, um, that they get more and more interested in um, really using free software, and uh, which in the end means typically getting away from Microsoft. <laughs> okay, um, and cheaper in the end? It's probably not cheap. Well, whether it's really cheaper is not 100% clear. It's, it's, it's probably one of, the th um, one of those lines of argumentation that you should not necessarily draw because um, um, the main thing is you need support for software. Um, and that's the same thing all over. Um, just because you don't have to buy your licenses initially, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, you don't need to pay for support stuff and people doing further development on that software. So that's probably not. The reason why it might become cheaper is simply um, because um, you, uh, no one really owns the software. So people always can only charge for services, but they cannot blackmail you. Okay, if you have a large provider of software, um, of a piece of software, and that entity is the only one that in the end can give it to you, okay, they can in the end charge you whatever you, uh, they want. And I mean, we've, we've seen these things also in the academic, um, uh, uh, in the academic theater, so that um, suddenly um, institutions were, that were previously considered to be educational are then suddenly not educational anymore because you're not really granting degrees. I mean, that's something, for example, that um, happens in Germany with things like um, Helmholtz um, Institutes. Um, and then suddenly your price rises by a factor of three. And um, if you then have 2,000 desktop computers that you, um, that you have to need uh, to buy licenses for them, that can be a six-digit sum. So um, I think, and this is, this is one of those things um, where, um, where, of course, we would expect that in the long run, um, uh, free software would probably um, also raise the, uh, or lower the um, prices in, in the end, also for the taxpayer. I don't know, for me, the parallel kind of springs to mind the publishing industry in, in academia. Mm. It's also kind of like a blackmailing uh, market <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Um, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, to play devil's advocate for a moment, mm -hmm. um, when we give the workshops, we often get researchers saying, why can't I commercialize my research output? Uh, why can't I um, make money from what I've done? Um, 
you know, is there something intrinsically wrong with that? Um, do you kind of have a counter argument? No, and I don't want to. I, I I don't want to put up a counter argument on that because in the end, I mean, so you see, I mean, if we say, well, we're a free society, then um, I mean, freedom of business is one of the central things there. So, um, the but I think the question really is. Do all of the promises or ideas that people have about um, commercializing and um, getting material benefit from that really precipitate the way they think? Um, and does that really have the effect also for the initial, for the, for the original funding organizations? And on the other hand, what is the price that the public or the research community for that Pay, uh, pays for that when um, uh, when they um, when then the software is not under a free license, and so I think this is this is one one of the topics that um, um, I know is underworks in a lot of um, um, institutes that they are now thinking okay we need some kind of tiered approach to this so um, if we um, if our tech transfer um, needs to evaluate every hundred lines of code that are written, whether they might be commercializable, um, honestly, we're getting nowhere. Um, um, so, but therefore, but of course, if this is really a huge piece and it could generate rev uh, revenues for an institution um, and thereby, again, of course, will save taxpayers, uh, taxpayers money in some way, um, then that might be approached. But I think we should rather think of this as a very rare exception. Um, uh, than the rule. Um, and so therefore, um, I think the typically the main resistance that, that I know of is that well, when people say, well, once we put our code out there, um, everyone can see it. And as most people are not necessarily trained software engineers, they are always afraid that there are just um, well, either mistakes in them or um, that the code looks ugly. Right. But honestly, if there are mistakes in the code, um, that affect the scientific result, then it's important that the, um, uh, that the community knows and that, they, uh, that it can evaluate it. Um, because that's, that's the same thing like, you have, uh, like if you have a mistake in your protocol. Um, and if it's just ugly, okay, in the end probably no one, uh, probably no one will care and um, next time you'll try better. Yeah, it's funny when we talked to Eva Mendes, she was also talking about the data uh, looking ugly and this preventing people to putting data out there because uh, it's not polished enough or like not, you know, um, showable for the, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the public. No. Yeah, yeah but, but you see, I think there is one difference because data shouldn't be polished, okay? Um, mm -hmm. Data, um, I mean, data, data needs to be in a computable format. Um, and um, of course, well, if that means that's, that, yes, I would like to have it, for example, in a tabular structure, but um, I mean, polishing already has this thing like, okay, well, we're kicking out a couple of columns or a couple of lines. And so therefore, <laughs> Yeah. I would be I would be careful I would be careful with that while for while while that's that's the difference with code I mean you can try to write and re I mean you can try to polish your code um, but it still will be uh, do the same it just will do it faster or will be more readable um, uh, for the next person uh, that has a look at it. Just from my understanding, how does ugly code look like? How does ugly code look like? Um, uh, 
I mean, you're from biology. So, um, I mean, how would an ugly protocol look like? Okay. If um, people tell you um, basically one paragraph later, which buffer they added before, um, that would be one thing. Then um, if a protocol uses 100 Eppendorf tubes instead of five, um, while those five would be enough, um, okay. would be okay. okay In the I end, you see, I mean, the code, the code is not just the protocol. The pro code is really like um, you, seeing how someone did the experiment and whether they had um, just one neatly sorted Eppendorf rack or whether they basically had their tubes all over the place. So. And ugly, yeah. ugly code really is ugly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but weirdly, it also works just like in real life and biology experiment. Even the messiest of people get their things to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in an, in an ideal world, what would science look like for you? What would software in science look like? Mm, okay, so I think I think the general thing is uh, that we have to distinguish is what is the software that is written by scientists, and the other thing is what are is the software that scientists use um, because that's not necessarily always the same thing. Um, and um, I just assume now that we're focusing on the first one, um, uh, but. We can elaborate on the second one later. Um, so um, how would software look like? So um, I think um, um, there are now um, a couple of movements uh, or organizations um, that really try to do um, basically what they call good software carpentry. Mm -hmm. um, so um, provide guidelines on how to write, well, not necessarily beautiful code, but at least non-ugly code. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, so I think if we try to try to apply the fair criteria um, uh, to, uh, to a piece of code, then of course on the one hand it would mean well, it should be written in a in a standard language, um, uh, which we can probably boil down to let's say five or six depending on the domain. Um, uh, it should be, um, uh, of course, publicly available. And here, um, things like versioning management done by Git is um, probably we can consider to be state of the art. Um, where you exactly host it, that's one of the things that is up for discussion. There are larger commercial repositories, but so you don't have to pay for them, but they uh, belong to commercial entities um, that are used quite frequently. But more and more institutions also start up their own um, GitLab um, repositories. Um, the one thing, so um, this then would probably um, uh, address the findable and accessibility part. Um, the usability, of course, also depends on the um, licensing. And this, again, brings us back to the free software part. So um, there, um, typically, scientists don't really like to go into the details of licensing. Um, and then either, worst of all, they don't license at all. Um, which is pretty bad because then um, if there is no license, then no one can reuse it. Um, or um, they just put um, whatever license they find on it, uh, which of course also doesn't help. So they're um, raising the awareness that probably using one of those standard licenses that I mentioned before, so either GPL if you want to have a copyleft or um, things like Apache 2, um, 
uh, would be um, would already be a step forward because for those licenses we also understand the interoperability criteria so if you want to take multiple software packages and redistribute them at the same time um, um, whether that works whether there is any uh, whether they might clash at some point typically they don't but um, that's also one always one of the things that people from the legal side are uh, typically concerned of are there any are there any like legal procedure um has something happened yet? Like, there, is there any case where you would go like, okay, this really exemplifies what goes wrong if licensing is not done properly, or you know something goes wrong in this process? Is there anything spectacular that happened, or mm. usually just under the radar, anyways, somehow? Or? No, I mean most things for um, for for these things really just uh, run under the radar. Um, one of the things is we um, it took actually quite some time until. Um, uh, I mean, so for GPL, for example, we know now that um, um, it's accepted by the European courts um, uh, also as, and um, people have been sued. That's usually for embedded devices. So there have been a couple of court cases over the last years that um, manufacturers for home routers, for example, were sued for uh, violating GPL. Um, uh, but that's really in a case where uh, you see, okay, people are making substantial money by break by violating that or not caring about the license. Mm -hmm. In the scientific domain, I'm not aware of any example that um, people would run into trouble. And uh, one important thing, of course, is that um, the um, the licenses always have a, um, a basically a disclaimer or a waiver. Um, for um, responsibility. So basically the software is provided as it is. Um, it's not meant to be fit for any purpose, um, which is then typically one of the things that um, if there would be a commercial entity supporting these things, then of course they would try to provide the support um, uh, to, um, that, uh, but then that kind of support is, is fixed in the uh, support level agreement um, between the parties, not necessarily in the licensing agreement. Okay, now if we move on to the, the software that scientists use. Okay, so I think there it's um, uh, it's simply the question, I mean, so that's, that's basically my perspective from the teaching side. So, um, of course, uh, so I would like to, to teach my students or to give my students tools that they can use wherever they go. Um, if I teach, teach them to use some kind of expensive software package um, that they don't have at home, um, that might run at my institution because we have a campus license or our lab has a license for that, um, then I teach them that stuff and then they move to another institution where they don't have that license. So what they, uh, should they do? Um, so either they violate the copyright um, of the user and just pirate the software, which is realistically what most people or what, what happens uh, quite often. Um, or um, I try um, basically from the start to find um, uh, packages that are on, uh, that are free software and um, that they uh, that they can then also install and keep installed on their own computer and I think this is this is one of the things for example um, I mean um, uh, things like MATLAB or um, SPSS um, are uh, commercial software suits for both statistics and, and simulation purposes and here um, things like um, 
for example, R um, and the associated um, development environments, um, but similar things exist for Python, um, now really um, help us to do these things because um, typically, there are, typically these things are free software. Mm. And they are just as good. Because when there's sometimes this argument of, uh, well, yeah, but it's there, it's free, but it's difficult to use or something, the interface isn't cool enough. Or <laughs> okay, so, so of course, I think um, in general, in general um, for these general purposes, yes. I mean, R is long-standing, for example, is a long-standing project. Um, uh, there are hundreds and thousands of people involved in it. Um, so then, of course, you, you do reach um, a certain level of quality. So I think I would, I would turn the, the, the argument around. Of course, um, there is um, free software that is of low quality, but um, it doesn't mean that all free software is of low quality. Um, I mean, if you look at the Linux kernel, um, most devices um, in, on this planet run on Linux and not on one of the other operating systems. So I think that clearly speaks for the quality. Um, if uh, any of our listeners were, um, you know, interested in maybe making their software more open, free or whatever, mm -hmm. um, where would be a good, is there a, a resource that you can point to? Where would be a good place for them to start? I mean, you said often they don't look into licenses much. Is there somewhere they can learn more about it? Okay, so I mean, specifically about licenses, um, there is so the, um, so that's of course one of the things that for, uh, again, the FSFE um, is working on. And um, so they both run licensing workshops, which are, but those are typically more focused towards real legal people. Um, um, but they also have point of contacts that um, can do some um, initial consulting um, on these things. Um, otherwise, um, usually they, um, um, a good way is always but try to see whether there's any person um, in their cons um, in their within their institution, but of course, I mean that's not a f something fixed that um, uh, I could name. And um, at least in Germany, I mean, in the, on the level of um, uh, of the larger scientific societies, um, they are now really trying to establish uh, to establish dedicated offices um, somewhere um, within their framework. So, I, for example, I mean, I know that um, Helmholtz is right now going through that process. Um, some are also in the in the context of um, um, he, uh, the HIFAS project, um, and I've heard similar things from Max Planck, um, but. I cannot tell you how University of Bielefeld is handling this. So, fair enough. So, free software and fair um, does not necessarily. Um, so, it has similar components, um, but um, clearly, the free software concept doesn't necessarily um, address the findability and accessibility, which of course is important. While fair just means that it should be somehow reusable. Um, but that can, could still theoretically be under a um, um, uh, uh, proprietary license. It just means that you that there needs to be a possibility to license. And um, I think there, um, um, I hope that funding agencies um, can go to uh, um, manage to go further, because if we look right now, um, for example, in the EU, EU level, um, if you look at the FP9 slash Horizons Europe, then um, we see that they still talk about software mainly um, as an other research product, 
um, um, next to scholarly communications and data. Um, and um, um, I think getting a little bit more traction here to um, to make sure that funding agencies um, also that also that on the policy level um, software is recognized as a third entity um, that would be um, that that has slightly different requirements um, for um, to really foster a broad reuse um, would be would be the next step. some interesting comparisons to be made between uh, this interview we've just done with Christian and uh, Eva Mendes, because both of them mentioned um, researchers being worried about what their output might look like. Mm -hmm. And also, Eva Mendes really brought home to me something that I hadn't realized, which was that I hadn't re consciously realized, which is fair and open, not synonyms. You can have something that is fair but not open, and you can have something that's open but not fair when in terms of data. And the distinction that Christian was making between um, free to use and you know um, not necessarily being the same as as um, without a cost. Without a cost, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, which obviously in English is a little bit difficult. I don't know if it's any better in German. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Yeah, because cost and loss and fry is not the same. No, no, no. Yeah. No, but it is really interesting because uh, it brings this uh, whole uh, world of commercialization and, uh, you know, copyrights, uh, the IP rights, this this whole thing of that people are so afraid of, or not afraid of, but like, the first thing people talk about when talking about open science, but what about making money out of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if I understood Christian correctly, it's basically, okay, so if you if you do create a piece of code, um, a software, um, and it is free to use, it's still, you can still make a business model out of it because the software will still need support. So and that's where the money should be, basically, yeah. because you have to pay someone, a person, to spend their time on actually, you know, helping you with whatever you need to using yeah. this software, right? Um, and I think this is uh, something that we very rarely think about, the cost of um, support, kind of, this is yeah. this is actually where, yeah. Because that's what Microsoft is doing. I mean, they, yeah. okay, they sell the licenses, okay, but you know, whenever you need uh, something fixed, I mean. Yeah, or just a simple software upgrade. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, Microsoft famously, of course, back in the 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 um, '80s, got taken to court in America and found, you know, they were monopolizing um, mm. because they were the only ones. Um, so, you know, this is something that's definitely been a big legal issue: who has access to this software, who's supporting it, who owns it. Um, this is something that really is a big issue in our current um, system in terms of capitalization commercialization mm. so it's not just it's not just on a small scale it's 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 on the biggest scale yeah and you know people don't realize i mean people in science usually don't think about that the computer that they they desktop whatever and not even the you know not the one that's supporting the big 
confocal microscope, but they just the one that they type their thesis on, basically. It still has all this licensing, the software and everything there. And this also comes from somewhere, also costs money. And, um, you know, just thinking those little simpler terms, uh, your word, basically, yeah. it's not for free. This idea, I, I mean, I've definitely come across this, oh, it's free, therefore it's basically worthless. It's free, as in free software. Um, it's not as good quality as the stuff you have to pay for. So I was, I was interested that Christian challenged mm. that. I also, I also like, and it's basically, again, this is one of those emerging teams. So what do we have now? We have usually the, the peer review, the incentives. Yep. Um, basically now I think it's also this parallel of like monopoly. So um, mm. the open access is fighting the publishing monopoly. Yeah. Um, and open software movement is fighting the software monopoly, mm -hmm, kind yeah. of. I mean, it's this, yeah, who owns what? Who owns knowledge? Yeah, who owns knowledge? Oh, let's end on that note. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's it for today. So hope you enjoyed another episode of Orion Open Science Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. As always, the music has been written and produced by Fabio de Miguel. And the sound editing is being done by Paula Olivier. You can reach us anytime on yeah, Twitter. You can. You can reach us on Twitter at uh, OOSP underscore OrionPod. Uh, like us, follow us, retweet us, comment, message, anything you like. Uh, you can also um, message us directly on Orion at mdc-berlin.de. Please feel free to email us. Um, and ask us any question or suggest anyone we think we should talk to. Or if you want, you can nominate yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. Actually, yes. Do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're always looking for, for new interview partners. In two weeks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>